All right. Let's begin. Um, let's begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, we come before you with hearts of gratitude that in your word we can hear your voice. You're speaking to us. Um, help us to be attentive and listen and, and um, look deep into your, to your revelation that we might know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are doing the whole Bible in 10 lessons, um, which means we're roughly going to look at each book every seven minutes. And uh, the, the vision that I have is that um, I give you a sense of each book. Seven minutes is not very long, but um, I give you a sense of it, um, the, the main distinctives of it, um, the themes of it. We're going to read one passage from each book so that it will spark your interest and hopefully lead to more scripture reading on your part. So we are looking at uh, the, uh, the Hebrew Bible is organized, at least in the English version, the Hebrew Bible is organized by genre. So the first five books is the Torah. We looked at that last week. Um, then there are 12 historical books, and today we're just going to look at five of them. Uh, the next lesson, which we're not going to do next week, um, we're going to have a, a, about a month break <laughs> so that I can work on the lesson. But um, the, ne the next lesson we'll do is, um, is uh, seven books. And then we'll do the wisdom, uh, poetry books, and then finally the prophets. Prophets are organized in two sections. The major prophets, basically the prophets with a lot of chapters, and then the minor prophets, um, the prophets with only a few chapters. And so it's very uh, easy. In fact, the whole English Bible is organized in that way by genre. So the New Testament as well, all of Paul's epistles come immediately after the historical books, and then you have the other epistles and so forth. So we're looking at the historical books. And um, I think a good way to think about the Bible is to look at the movement of God's people um, and to see that um, the movement, the geographical movement, has a deep theological meaning. And this will help us to understand um, this, the unfolding narrative of what's going on. So, I have it sort of graphically uh, uh, displayed for you on your handout, but um, we looked at last week, Egypt, bondage in Egypt is really a picture of our bondage to sin. We're, we were slaves to sin, or God's people were slaves to sin. Um, and then they crossed the Red Sea. Miraculously, God parts the Red Sea. And then they were heading towards the promised land, right? And they have to cross the Jordan River. That's in the early chapters of Joshua. The crossing of Joshua is also a miraculous crossing. God miraculously parts the water, so it's showing you the boundary lines. And pro the promised land, Canaan, we said was a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, right? New heavens and new earth. And then um, in between is this long, long journey through the wilderness, the howling, desolate wilderness, which is a picture of our Christian life. Full of trials, full of temptations, um, where we have to trust God Right, where we live not by sight but by faith. We live with every, by every word of the mouth of God. Now, this paradigm is very important to understand Joshua, Judges, and 1 Samuel. Um, so I want to belabor it a little bit. Um, the new heavens and the new earth, okay? So this is very important. Um, I'm not talking here. So the promised land, right, the land of Canaan, which is actually a relatively small strip of land if you look at the whole of the globe, um, I said you could think of it as a beachhead, right? Um, just like the Allies landing in Normandy, they have a small strip of land on continental Europe, but then eventually through that beachhead you can advance and reclaim all of Europe for the Allies. That's what God is doing. The earth was full of righteousness and beauty and, and, and glory, but then because of the fall, it fell into Satan's hands, enemy hands, so that Satan is now the, the ruler and the lord of this world. But then God is landing. He's invading the earth. It's a beachhead. Starts with Abraham, 
starts with the family, starts with the nation, and then he claims a plot of land. Now the fact that he claims a plot of land is highly, highly significant because it has to do with what is the ultimate goal that God is trying to achieve. The, the end of the story is not that we leave this forsaken earth, this wicked earth, and then we flee to this cloudy, ethereal heaven. But the end of the story is that heaven comes down, that the earth is renewed and remade, right? And so when we say new heavens and new earth or new creation, we don't mean new as in a, a new thing completely, right? Like when you get a new car, you junk your old car and then you get a new car, right? That's not what Paul, that's not what the Bible is talking about. When we say new, we're talking about renewed, right? So um, uh, when, when, we, when the Bible says that we are new creation, it's not that we junk our old bodies or junk our old selves. We're, we're still us, there's continuity, but now we're remade and restored in the way that we were always intended to be. So this is very important, this idea that the promised land is a picture of this ultimate, it's a down payment of what is ultimately going to happen, right? Because this is the whole globe, this is the promised land, and eventually it's going to spread outward. And God is going to reclaim the whole earth as his. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so let's launch into the books then. Introduction to Joshua. So uh, the, lead, the, the leadership, the, the, the early chapters of Joshua recounts the story of how the leadership of God's people is transferred from Moses, who led the people through the Exodus and the wilderness, to Joshua, his trusted aide. Um, Moses is not allowed, is not permitted to go into the promised land. The reason for this uh, is told in Numbers chapter 20, uh, if you know the story at Meribah, when Israel grumbled, Moses was so frustrated. He was so angry. He lashes out in anger. He strikes a rock twice, and he does not display um, the righteous character of God. And so Moses is forbidden to enter the promised land. That's very significant because Moses is the greatest leader of Israel. Um, in fact, at the uh, uh, the end of Deuteronomy, it says that Moses was the humblest man who ever lived, right? So it's showing you the exemplary character of Moses, and yet even Moses could not enter the promised land. What is that telling us? It's telling us something very significant. It's telling us that ultimately we cannot, even the best, the best of the best cannot enter the promised land by their own merit and record. And so that whole first generation perishes in the wilderness because of their disobedience. If you remember, they send spies to, to scout out Canaan, and the spies come back. There are giants who live there. We are like grasshoppers before them. So their faithlessness, God says, this whole generation will perish in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb, who are the only two spies who said we can do it. Right? If God is with us, we can take this place. Um, and so, again, why, why, why does the first generation perish in the wilderness? Because remember, the promised land is a picture a symbol of this renewed, restored creation where there will be no evil, no faithlessness, no wickedness. And so that generation cannot enter that promised land. It has to be a new generation. So the text we're going to read is, um, oh, and then uh, this is the timeline. So here we are at the conquest. We're going to look at Joshua through uh, the books of Samuel. So we're going to look at a time period basically here all the way to, to here. Um, that's going to occupy us today, and then the next week we're going to go all the way to the return. So the historical books covers about a thousand-year period. Um, we're going to do that in two lessons, so it's pretty, it'll be pretty breakneck speed. Um, so Joshua chapter 6, this is the famous story of the fall of Jericho. Joshua records the conquering of only two cities um, in detail, Jericho and Ai. Um, the rest of the cities are sort of like spoken of in summary, really quick action. Um, the reason be being that, that Jericho and Ai are significant cities, um, but we were, we're not going to go into Ai, we're just going to go into Jericho. So let me read the passage for you. Let me read the, let me, as soon as I could adjust this. Okay, verse 15. On the seventh day, so let me pause right there. Um, so what happens is God instructs Joshua to march around 
the uh, city of Jericho blowing, uh, I forget now, but marching around, I don't know if they were blowing trumpets, but they were marching around the city of Jericho for six days, I think because they were warning the people of Jericho. They were giving the people of Jericho a chance to, to repent and convert. We'll get, that in, we'll get into that a, la- a bit later. But let me just read verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we send, whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted a great shout, the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Um, so when modern people read this passage, and passages like this, and there are other passages like this, the immediate um, reaction is distress at the bloodiness of this conquest, Right? Uh, in verse 17, God commands the people, devote to the Lord for destruction everyone in the city, men, women, um, children. Um, the complete annihilation of the Canaanites are commanded. So how should we understand this? It troubles many people. It troubles uh, modern Christians a great deal. So the answer goes back to this paradigm that I've been talking about. The promised land, okay, Canaan, is a miniature version of the new heavens and the new earth. And so the conquest, right, and the conquest comes here. The conquest which is recorded in the book of Joshua. Before, so, so think about the Christian, uh, uh, think about this whole uh, uh, story of salvation. We were slaves to sin. Then God rescues us out of that, and we live the Christian life, and then we're going to experience a new heavens and a new earth coming forward. But what must happen before the new heavens and the new earth happen, like are fully realized? What is the great critical event that must happen? What will precede the new heavens and the new earth? Yes. The king will return, Jesus, and there will be judgment day, right? Okay? So remember, the promised land, the land of Canaan, is a symbolic sort of uh, drama of this whole bigger story. And so the conquest is similarly a miniaturized version of judgment day brought forward in history upon this one land, the beachhead, right? So remember the Allies land at Normandy, all the Nazis have to be wiped out of Normandy. So all of the evil and the wickedness in Canaan has to be completely wiped out. If you read um, all throughout the Torah, particularly Deuteronomy, Canaanite evils are enumerated. The Canaanites were um, a wicked people, a very similar language, for example, to what you see preceding the flood with Noah. There was rampant idolatry, um, excessive sexual immorality, and particularly, and this is very uh, emphasized a great deal, child sacrifice. So the Canaanites were a wicked people. And if these evil things are left in the land, then this would would cease to be the new heavens and the the new earth. And here's another point that I want to emphasize. The conquest was limited to the promised land. Israel was not to create an empire because this is a beachhead. This is a a down payment. They're not to go ahead and spread out. The the act of spreading out awaits the new covenant in the New Testament through the church. 
we then claim more territory for the kingdom of God, right? But in the Old Testament, it's limited to the land of Canaan, to the land of Palestine, so they're not to go out. So if you read the Torah, if you read Joshua, um, Israel was free to make peace treaties with all the surrounding nations, right? To live at peace. They're not to go out and, and destroy them unless they're attack, uh, first attacked. But, um, um, but the land of Canaan, they're supposed to wipe them out. The second, thing, the second matter is the conquest was not a matter of ethnicity. So if you look at the Joshua account, notice that Rahab, who is a Canaanite, in fact, she's a prostitute, right? She's, um, she has this wicked lifestyle. And yet, because she helps the spies, and why does she help the spies? Because she believes in the, the God of Israel, right? She believes in Yahweh. She, she essentially converts. And so she and her whole family are spared. But then in the very next story, Joshua chapter 7, you have um, the story of Achan. He is a Hebrew Israelite. And yet, because he disobeys God, he keeps some of the plunder for himself. He and his whole family are destroyed in judgment because they cannot enter the promised land. So the promised land is, is not just for Jews, so to speak, or Hebrews. It's for all people who love the Lord, right? So that includes Rahab. Um, later on in Joshua, it includes the Gibeonites, who are a Canaanite people. But that whole people are grafted into the, the people of Israel and so forth. Another point, conquest was not for personal profit. As executioners of God's justice, the people are commanded not to plunder. So if you look at the text, you'll notice that all of the livestock are to be destroyed. Uh, this is very significant because the livestock was, was almost certainly the majority of the wealth in Canaan. Um, but the camels, the donkeys, oxen, sheep, they're all killed because this is not, um, this is not a, a war for personal profit or, 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 or um, greed, but this is judgment day, right? If you're the judge, do you get to, after you order the execution of a criminal, do you get to go into his home and plunder his money? You would be compromised as a judge, right? You people would question what your motives are. All of the precious metals are dedicated to the Lord later for the building of the temple. Um, the other thing I want to point out is this whole idea of redemptive history, which is a very important concept. So what, does, what, do we, what do we mean by redemptive history? It means that the story that we're reading in the Bible are, are object lessons to teach us about the gospel, to teach us about salvation in Christ, and they are not necessarily events that we as modern believers are supposed to replicate, repeat, and do over again, right? So again, the promised land, the land of Canaan, which we talked about last week, right? We said ultimately this whole experiment fails because the people of God do not stay in the promised land. They experience the exile, right? So that whole like long thousand-year lesson is over. Class dismissed, lesson learned. What is the lesson? We need Jesus, right? So therefore, the conquest is not a blueprint for our own modern behavior. Does that make sense? These are unique, once and for all, unrepeatable events. Two more, um, two more uh, notes, uh, comments I want to make. I want you to notice the unique battle tactics of the conquest. The Israelites march around the city um, seven times. They blow. First of all, they're led by priests blowing trumpets. So this, this doesn't make any sense. It actually emphasizes the supernatural, miraculous nature of the conquest. It is God who is winning the promised land. So that we enter the promised land, we enter the new heavens and the new earth, not by our merit, not by our strategic intelligence and craftiness, but by God doing it, achieving it for us. Salvation is by grace alone. Final point, uh, I want to show you that um, Joshua is a type of Christ. So. Joshua and Jesus is basically the same name. It is the same name. So let me, um, let me show you. So Joshua comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua. Okay? So that's, if you read the Hebrew Bible, that's the name you're seeing. Yeshua is the English, it's too hard for us Westerners to say Yeshua. So we say Joshua, right? Um, the Greek, ver so this is Hebrew. 
the Greek version of Yeshua, so the Greeks couldn't say Yeshua either. So the Greek version of Yeshua is Jesus. Right? That's, that's Greek. Um, Jesus, by the way, is where a lot of other languages get the, the name Yesu, right? So when you hear the name Yesu, it's actually more, cr more closer to the Greek, right? I, that's like the Spanish name and, and other, other, other versions. Jesus is too hard for us English people to say again, so we do the English version of Jesus, okay? <laughs> Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, all the same name, okay? So this is very significant because remember, God commands uh, Joseph to name his son Jesus, right? B by the way, Yeshua just means um, the Lord saves or Yeshua, say, or, uh, 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 Yeshua saves. And so what, when we see Joshua, think Jesus. It's the exact same name. Jesus is leading the armies of God into the promised land, conquering the uh, Canaan. Um, and it shows us an aspect of Jesus as a divine warrior. In fact, in Revelation 19, we see Christ as a warrior. He's riding a war horse. He's wielding a fiery sword. His robes are drenched in blood. Okay? So that's Joshua. Any questions before we go to Judges? Excellent. Judges. Um, so the opening chapters recounts the failure of each tribe to conquer the land. So this is very important. Okay, so this is the book of Joshua. The book of Judges then starts, let me do a different marker. So this is the book of Joshua, uh, Judges. Um, and the book of Judges begins by talking about how the conquest was incomplete. It recounts each tribe they left the Canaanites alone for various reasons. Sometimes they would intermarry with the Canaanites. Sometimes they would enslave the Canaanites. Remember, the command was to destroy them, right, unless they converted. Um, destroy them, but they enslave them. They live at peace with They make peace treaties with them. And so the conquest is incomplete. And so the land in, in the book of Judges is filled with Canaanites. And therefore, the storyline of the Bible is interrupted, right? So this beautiful story... Egypt, then the wilderness, then the promised land, the book of Judges tells us it never happens. They never enter the promised land. That's the point of the book of Judges. They're in the promised land, right, like geographically, but they're not in the promised land because they never exact, they never commit, they never do what they were supposed to do which is to establish a beachhead and wipe out the Canaanites. The Canaanites stay. And so because of the Canaanites' presence, the promised land is never truly the promised land. That's the story of Judges. And in fact, through the rest of the Bible, Israel never truly conquers the land. That's, that's what we're supposed to understand. This whole beautiful story is arrested at Judges, and it's never completed until, of course, the true Joshua comes later on. Um, and so in a sense, because the Canaanites are still there, the Canaanites then end up oppressing and enslaving the Israelites so that the people of God are back here. They're in a new Egypt. They're in Egypt again under a new oppression, under a new slavery. And so just like the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, they cry out to God for a savior. That's the story. So in a sense, we're going back to Exodus. And you'll see this cycle. There's a, it's a very famous cycle um, in which there are five stages. Let me recount it for you. Stage one, the people rebel against God. Number, stage two, God permits the people to experience the suffering and the consequences of their sins. Stage three, the people then cry out to God, help us, help us. Stage four, God sends, I wrote Savior, Savior, typo. Uh, it's supposed to be God sends a Savior judge. Right? At first, I put judge, savior, and then I was like changing it around, and then I forgot to change it. So please cross that out. God sends a savior, judge. And then stage five, there's peace and rest. So the passage maps out perfectly to that cycle. This is the story of the first judge. It's the cleanest cycle. 
the cycle gets dirtied up as we go along, and we'll talk about that. So Judges chapter 3, let me read it for you. Stage 1 is people rebel against God, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, right? Stage 2, God permits the people to suffer the consequences of sins. Verse 8, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the, la into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served, right? They were enslaved, oppressed. They served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Stage 3, the people cry out to God. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to God, right, just like the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, leads to stage 4, God sends a savior judge. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Right? So he delivers the people. He defeats their enemies. That leads to stage 5. There was a period of peace and rest. Verse 11, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the, king, the son of Kenes, died, um, and there was a happy ending, peace and love, the end. No. Notice verse 12, right? Depressing. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil on the side of the Lord. Side of the Lord. So there's a stage six. What is stage six? Repeat stages one through five over again. Okay? So the book of Judges is a hopeless cycle. Sin, deliverance, return to sin. Sin, deliverance, return to sin. And remember I said that the whole point of the, um, the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, the whole point of the Old Testament is to show us the futility of human obedience, the futility of law-keeping, of human righteousness to give us salvation. So it's a thousand-year history, a 1,500-year history of going over and over again, this repeated cycle, until it's hammered home, hammered home, hammered home, and then the people are ready for the true Savior, the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the important thing to know is that the cycle actually gets worse and worse. It doesn't just repeat. It's not just Groundhog Day. Um, it's not just a cycle like this where it just goes over and over and over again. It's actually a spiral downward. Okay? So the first three judges, um, the first three judges is, are relatively good. Othniel, you don't see anything bad about him. Ehud, um, and then there's Deborah, Barak, um, those are the first three good judges. Then you have the bad judges, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Um, so let's start with Gideon. Let me, let me see how we're doing with time, and I might accelerate the lesson. I'm stuck on, oh, there we go, okay. Um, all right, so let's do Gideon. Um, so Gideon. I, so many lessons on Gideon, like, ch in, in, like, children's lessons, right? And, like, sweet little stories and veggie tales about Gideon, right? But they always stop midway through the story. Hmm, right? Um, the, the first part of the story is a beautiful story. Oh, there's little Gideon. He is, like, threshing in the wine press because he's scared. And then the angel comes and he says, you, Gideon, you mighty warrior. He's like, me, no, no. And then Gideon, he like assembles this army and God says, too much, too much. So then they whittle it down to 300 and Gideon's like, for the Lord, for Gideon. They race out there, 300 soldiers. They defeat the, uh, I forget who, 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 whoever the Canaanite peoples were. Wonderful, beautiful story. Oh, our hearts swoon. But the majority of the story is actually the aftermath. Right? So then what happens is there were people who didn't support Gideon. So he remembers. He's a vindictive, judgy, you know, grudge-holding guy. So he goes back to all the towns that opposes him, and he crushes them. Um, there was this one town called Sukkoth. He takes the elders. He flails their skin. Um, he goes to the city of Peniel. He crashes down the tower. And, then, uh, and so what happens is the cycle is breaking because it's not the judge attacking um, foreign enemies. The judge now is attacking his own people. 
Then what happens is Gideon builds an ephod. That's a priestly, uh, uh, priestly outfit. He establishes a rival religious center in Ophrah, which is his hometown. Then the text tells us that the ephod became an idol. So people started coming to this religious center, and they started worshiping this ephod, treating it like God. So usually the people fall into idolatry after the judge dies, but this time the people fall into idolatry during the life of the judge. Then Gideon begins acting like a king. He assembles an enormous harem. He has 70 sons, not, no mention of a daughter, so he probably had something like 150 children. Um, he names his son, his eldest son, Abimelech. If you know Hebrew, Abi means my father, Melech means king. He names his son, my father is king. Hmm. Um, Ab- uh, Gideon begins acting like a king, then he dies. And you think, okay, that was a weird interruption to the story. Let's go on to the next judge. Uh, uh, no, no, no. Then it's the story of Abimelech. Abimelech then murders all of his 70 brothers to consolidate power. He declares himself the king of Shechem. There's a civil war that ensues until Abimelech is finally killed himself. He kills himself in battle. And so we see Abimelech as a kind of pseudo-judge who mostly battles and kills his own people, Jephthah. I'm going to go a little bit faster. So Jephthah makes a rash vow and sacrifices his daughter. Um, he promises the Lord, whoever comes out of my house, if you give me victory, I will murder, I will, I will sacrifice to you. It happens to be his daughter. So what does he do? He commits child sacrifice. Remember, this is the classic evil sin of the Canaanites. Now the judge is doing it himself. Who, who is the Canaanites? The judge of Israel or the Canaanites? Then Samson. Samson is the worst of all the judges. Um, first of all, what's interesting about the Samson story is that there is, the cycle breaks down. There is no repentance or crying out by the people to God. In fact, throughout the whole account of Samson, it's very peaceful. There's no fighting. It's a peaceful occupation because what has happened is that the people have assimilated completely with the Canaanites. Samson has to fight alone whenever he does fight. And in fact, he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to fight the Canaanites. He wants to marry them, right? He marries two of them. And it's only out of personal vengeance and pique that he actually does the fighting. Finally, that, it doesn't end that way. The, the, the Judges doesn't end with that. Then the last five chapters of Judges, I've never ever heard a sermon on the last five chapters of Judges, maybe for a good reason. There are no judges. It is the darkest of all periods of Israel. So it, it, the, the, the chief story, it, it's going to get a little bit graphic, but it is in scripture, so I'm going to go ahead. Um, so the chief story is um, there is a Levite who has a concubine. Concubine just means his second or third wife. So he has a concubine. He goes to the town of Gibeah, which is a Benjamite town, and then um, he's sitting in the town square. A man comes to him and says, oh, what are you doing out here? Please come into my home. Um, rest here. Then late at night, the men of the town bang on the door. Let us in. We want to have sex with the Levite. What does that story remind you of in the Old Testament, in the Genesis? Sodom. You know what that's saying? Sodom is the chief um, vilest example of evil and wickedness in the Old Testament, and now it's in Israel itself, right? And so uh, what happens then, um, what, <laughs> what happens then is uh, the concubine is pushed out. So what happens is the Levi pushes out the concubine because he wants to save his own skin. Um, the, the, the concubine is mistreated, and then she's killed. And then what happens is um, the, the, the Levi comes out. He takes a knife. He, he, he carves up the concubine into 12 pieces. He sends the pieces out to all of the tribes, and then the 11 tribes go to war against Benjamin. They virtually annihilate the Benjamites in a civil war until there's only 600 Benjamite men who survive. And then they sort of say, oh, you know, this is a bad situation. So they want to find wives for the Benjamites, and then they go to another Israelite town called Jabesh Gilead. They massacre the whole town. They take 400 women. Those are the wives. There's still 200 more that are needed. So they they kidnap women during um, a feast in Shiloh. That's the story of Judges, right? Darkest, evil, vilest, terriblest story there can be. Um, What is the point of Judges? This is the point of Judges. It's the gospel in the negative space. So Judges is saying, not this, not this, not this, 
not this, not this, not this. And it never explicitly says this, but you're supposed to see this, right? And so it's talking about Christ in the empty space of the story. And the final verse of Judges is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the very last verse, because of the lack of a king, okay? So that leads us to Ruth, or any questions about Judges? All right. Um, judges. Oh, Ruth. Okay. So Ruth, Ruth, I love this story so much. The story of Ruth, you have to understand, is in the backdrop of Judges. Uh, the first verse is this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So it's supposed to let you know that during this evil, evil period of time is this sweet little story, this ray of light. And it's the story of Naomi. Naomi is in many ways the main character. Naomi has a husband named um, uh, Elimelech. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi, because of the famine, they go to Moab. But then in Moab, her husband dies, then her two sons dies, and then she's left childless. And her bereavement and widowhood is a picture of Israel. Right? It's, a, it's a symbolic of Israel's state of absolute destitution. It's to show, in the person of Naomi, you have the whole story of Israel encapsulated in a single person. Naomi is Israel. And at the end of chapter 1, Naomi comes back to her hometown of Bethlehem. And everyone's like, oh, Naomi's here, Naomi's here. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She's empty. And I want you to see, therefore, that Ruth's devotion to Naomi was really heroic because Naomi, in many ways, was a dead woman. There was only shame and poverty awaiting her in Bethlehem because as a widow, you have to understand, um, you cannot cannot economically survive as a widow. It was virtually impossible. The other thing I want to say is that the book of Ruth is not a romantic story in the modern sense. If you know Pride and Prejudice, we sort of want to map out the characters. Ruth is Lizzie Bennet. Boaz is Mr. Darcy. Um, but that's not the story. Um, it's the story of God's redeeming love for his people, pictured in the story of Boaz rescuing this family of widows. So we're going to read this passage, Ruth chapter 2. I love this passage. I don't know if I have, how much time I have to go. Oh, oh I love this passage. Um, I'll talk really fast. All right. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth went out, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who is of the clan of Elimelech. So she's going out there gleaning, which is mandated in the, in the Torah, the social justice laws, to gather the leftovers, right? And you have to understand the leftovers of the harvest, right? Um, so basically, you cut down the stalks of grain, and whatever the stubble is left on the ground, that's what you can glean for, for the poor. But um, gleaning was very difficult. It was, you were only limited to scraps. Enti- entire time, you're jostling with, other po- with the other poor. You're open to harassment. Remember, uh, Ruth is a mobile, so she's a foreigner. Um, sh- she was a single woman, so she at constant risk of, of physical assault. But then what happens is that, um, and if you remember the story, Boaz has to command his workers, don't touch Ruth. Meaning, otherwise, they would have manhandled Ruth. Um, but it, the story says that she toils from sun, sun up to sundown, 14 hours, every hour of sunlight she uses. And she's not just gleaning, but she has to beat out, she has to thresh and winnow. And in verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what, what food she had left over after being satisfied. So here it is very quickly. Typical day's wages for a grown man is about two pounds of grain. A woman gleaner can, ex- can expect maybe half of that or a quarter of that, so half a pound or a pound of grain. It says that Ruth brought home an ephah of barley. Ephah is 30 pounds of grain. It's 15 times a man's wages. It's about two bags of rice at a supermarket. So, and not only that, does Ruth bring home all of that <laughs> barley grain. Then she brings home a cooked, ready, ready-made cooked meal that um, Boaz had given her. Because right? first of all, you have to remember that Orpha, I mean not Orpha, Naomi is sitting home all day 
She hasn't eaten anything. She's starving. She's waiting to hear, maybe Ruth has been harmed. Maybe Ruth is dead. Ruth brings home two bags of rice. She brings home a ready-cooked meal, and then she says, guess whose field I was in? Boaz, who is a relative, a cousin of Elimelech. So what is this whole story about? It's the story of the God of Ruth and Naomi is a God of lavish grace and love. His love is greater than we dare imagine. And in the face of anger, bitterness, and faithlessness in Naomi, God shows mercy, right? And so it's really showing God showing mercy on Israel. So here's Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Hebrew word is goel. The Torah has a specific provision for rescuing destitute families, a kinsman redeemer. Um, It's spelled out in Leviticus 25, Numbers 27. So the goel can go and buy back the land and For Boaz, it's even more intense than that because he has to marry into this family of widows. Um, And it shows that this redemption was a costly act of self-sacrifice. The end of the story, Boaz and Ruth have a son. The son's name is Obed. Then it goes on to say that Obed was the grandfather of King David. And so what it's showing us is that this beautiful story of grace in the dark backdrop of Judges, you have this shining light. And through the faithfulness of Boaz and the faithfulness of Ruth, they have a son who will eventually lead to King David, who will then rescue God's people. And ultimately, King David, we know, is not even the end. It's he leads to the true king, King Jesus. All right, books of Samuel. Oh, I went so fast, I feel like I redeemed some time. Okay, Um, (laughs) Samuel. So Samuel is actually a single book in the Old Testament. It's just split into two scrolls because they didn't. <laughs> scrolls were not were not sufficiently long, so that's where we get First and Second Samuel. Samuel um, is the continuation of Judges. Samuel is the last judge in a sense, and at the beginning of the story, the religious state of Israel is very very low. Um, you see that in all these little pictures. For example, it's the story of Hannah. She goes to the tabernacle to pray, and then Eli, the priest, says, "Why are you drunk?" Because he has never seen a woman. He has never seen a person praying with such deep emotion. He's never seen real prayer. So he's like, you're drunk, right? She says, no, I'm not. I'm praying. Um, Then we know that Eli's sons, the text tells us, um, acted corruptly at the tabernacle. And then at the beginning of the whole story when Samuel um, is called as a prophet, it says the word of the Lord was rare. So the main point of the story is the, uh, uh, the main story, the main point of Samuel is the institution of the king. Okay, so this is, so let me pause here for a moment because this is very important. Samuel is all about the fact that there's a king. Um, Remember in the book of Judges, the people were faithless as a result of a lack of a godly king. And kingship is in fact anticipated in the Torah. Um, Genesis 17 God tells Abraham, kings shall come from you. Um, Joseph, in his blessing, says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Deuteronomy 17 talks about a godly king who will write down a scroll of the law for himself. And so here, let me read um, the first passage, 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is where Israel asks for a king. uh, Chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So the people here request a king like the kings of the nations. And essentially what they're saying is, we don't want you as our king, God. We we don't want to be a distinct and holy people. The people wanted to assimilate, and they wanted to blend into the surrounding culture. So then God says to Samuel, give them such a king. This is chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin. Remember Benjamin, by the way? It almost got wiped out. So it stays the smallest tribe throughout the rest of Israel. It's a very small tribe. That's why if you look at the maps of Israel and you see the tribal allotments, Benjamin is always a tiny circle because they only had 600 men at one point. Um, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. By the way, if you have a long uh, line of of fathers, sons, and fathers. What does that usually indicate? Yes? You are a very powerful, rich, significant family, right? The fact that he has such a long established lineage. He's a man of wealth. Listen to this. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. Listen to this. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. So he is just dazzling. He's like Brad Pitt, right? He's just 
astonishingly beautiful. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Not only was he dazzlingly beautiful, he was so tall. In a, in a culture where height was super, super important, okay? So Saul is outwardly impressive. He's a strong king. He's a proud king. He's exactly the king that the people wanted. But there's, it's interesting. If you read the account of Saul, you never see a description of his inner character. And it's to show us that he's a man who is only outward, outwardly impressive, but he's empty on the inside. But in contrast to that is God's choice. God's choice is a weak, humble king, David. And we meet David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Samuel comes to um, David's family, Jesse, and he says, um, show me all of your sons. So all the sons line up, seven sons. And he goes through all of them, and God says, nope, 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 right? God, man judges on the outside. God judges the heart. And after the seventh son, Samuel says, do you have another son? And uh, the, by, by the way, the number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. So all of his sons are there, seven sons. Samuel says, do you have another son, maybe? And then uh, Jesse says, well, I technically have another son, an eighth son. You can't mean David. He's out there tending the sheep. He's a nobody. Samuel says, that's the exact son I'm looking for, right? So David is a nobody. The, the description of David is that he's, um, he's ruddy. He's keeping the sheep. Ruddy means he's red. So I think it's probably his, his just rosy cheeks. He's just this little boy, right? And that's emphasized in uh, the story of David and Goliath. And the point is that King David is a forerunner of King Jesus. In the New Testament, David and Jesus are linked over 50 times. Jesus is called the son of David. He sits on the throne of David. He's born in the city of David. And what it's telling us is that we cannot understand the ministry of Jesus without looking at David. And what this is saying is that Jesus, right, it's the story ultimately of David, but it's the story ultimately of David's son, Jesus. And so it helps us to understand that when Jesus came preaching about the kingdom of God, we sort of spiritualized it. Um, we think about it as peace and love and groovy vibes. But he's talking about something deeper and greater than that. Like when people heard him talking about a kingdom, when people said, oh, you're the son of David, they thought, oh, aha, just like David wiped out the Philistines, so you're going to wipe out the current enemy, which is the Romans. So there was political overtones. When Jesus claimed to be the son of David, that's why Pilate says, are you a king? Aha, well, we know what to do with rival kings. We're going to crucify you. Um, I'm going to skip the overlap of the two kings. That was a really interesting point. Um, David in the wilderness. But what happens is David is anointed king. Saul is still the king, so he goes out into the wilderness. David is the innocent sufferer. He demonstrates his long-suffering, patient trust in the Lord. And twice David has the chance to murder Saul, uh, but he doesn't, and he shows his character. This is also the most prolific period of psalm writing in David's life. I think that's really significant and interesting. David in the wilderness is the most like Jesus that he ever is in his entire life. He's writing these beautiful psalms of faith. When David becomes king, the psalm writing drops down to a low ebb, right? Um, I think that says something about our own lives. All right, so 2 Samuel, we go to the Davidic covenant. All right, so remember I said the covenants are the organizing principle of the Bible. So here you have the beginning uh, covenant of works. And then you have the covenant of grace, which is the Abrahamic. Abraham. Um, which is the covenant of grace. And then on top of the Abrahamic covenant, you have the Mosaic covenant, which I said, remember, is the um, build. It's the same as the covenant of grace. Um, and then on top of the Mosaic, you have the Davidic. And then finally, you have the New Covenant, which is coming in the New Testament. Um, but uh, So here are all the major covenants. There's also the Noah Covenant. I'm going to ignore that because it doesn't neatly map onto everything. Um, <laughs> so so the, these are the covenants of grace. And the reason why the Davidic covenant uh, advances the Mosaic Covenant is that it narrows it down to a single person, right? So that the obedience of one representative the whole nation rises or falls. And what it also tells us is that God is going to rescue Israel, and God is going to rescue the world through a king. The king is going to be the rescuer. 
See, we didn't know that until the Davidic Covenant. And in that sense, the Davidic Covenant is extremely important to understand in the New Testament. And we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 7, which in my opinion is arguably the most important chapter in the whole of the Old Testament because it tells us what Jesus is even doing, why he came. Um, let me read it to you. This, the, you know, remember, uh, David conquers Jerusalem. He says, I want to build you a house, Lord, a temple. But God says to Nathan, go tell David, actually, I'm going to build your house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, right? That's the temple. So this son of David is going to, this offspring is going to build a temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Very significant. So this son of David is also going to be a son of God, okay? Um, when he commits iniquity, I will, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Right? So what does this tell us? It tells us that David's son will bring about the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises. He will bring peace and prosperity. He will build the temple. His kingdom will never end. And for a while, it seemed like it was Solomon. When Solomon became king, everyone said, this is it. This is happening. It's, 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 it's occurring. But then Sol Solomon falls short. So it shows us that the next, it's supposed to be the next king. It's the son of God, right? So remember, this king is called the son of God. So when Jesus claimed this title, what was he claiming? He was claiming to be this special Davidic king. He was, he was claiming to be the son of David, the fulfiller of the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this Davidic covenant. That's what Jesus was claiming. We often think when he says son of God, we think he's claiming divine divinity, but he wasn't necessarily. Um, and then what happens with uh, David and Bathsheba, it all comes collapsing down. It's the turning point in his kingdom. And eventually, David um, is ousted by Absalom, but he returns back to the throne, but he's a broken man, and that's the end of the story, right? Um, he's, he's a broken, sad man with only his memories. And what that shows us is that even though David was Israel's greatest king, there's another king to come. So that was my super fast lesson. I feel really sad that I couldn't go into it more in depth. All of my notes and work. <laughs> um, are there any questions before... We close. Okay. Um, let me close in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the richness of Scripture. We thank you that even little incidental details are not there on accident, but they're actually there for our edification and our encouragement and our faith in Christ. We pray that our faith in Christ would increase and grow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.